Welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if you mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Just a reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we can do it in the studio. So our apologies there. But as usual, the show must go on. So whether we're in the studio or doing it remote, we are here for you every week, so I'm glad you're able to join us. Now, today I would like to introduce you to Dani Kamir, who is doing a Master of Science in Healthcare Quality. Welcome to GradChat, Dani. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Now, Dani is a bit unusual for, for most grad students. In fact, you know, Dani's already got his um, MD, but is currently completing his residency in anesthesiology. So before we talk about the healthcare quality program that you're in, can you just explain for everyone, what does an anesthesiologist do? Yeah, so an anesthesiologist primarily is, is a physician that works in the operating room and provides care to patients before an operation, during an operation, and afterwards. So any type of care that's provided in and around that area, then anesthesia often participates. So, so it's, it's kind of like making sure we don't feel someone cutting into you, um, but there's other parts to it as well. Do you do all the oxygen and you know monitoring of the blood pressure as well? Is that all part of it, or is it more the pain side of things? It's kind of like being the pilot of the operating room. So we take care of the patient when they're sleeping. We ensure that all of their vital signs are stable. We man the machine that helps people breathe and ensure that the surgeons have the optimal operating conditions that they need in order to do the job that they need to do. So you're pretty important there <laughs> in the operating room. We serve, so we need to look after our anesthesiologists, that's for sure. <laughs> so uh, thank you for doing that job. Uh, I know having had a couple of operations myself, I certainly don't want to wake up on the table or, or feel any pain um, <laughs> and also make sure I am breathing. So that's always a big, a big bonus. So thank you for doing that. So you know, that role itself is a huge role in the fact that you're doing residency and normally in any sort of residency program, you're put through the works and things, I mean, because you're, you'd be helping, but you're learning at the same time. So what made you want to do, on top of that, a Master of Science in Healthcare Quality? I'm attracted to creative solutions that are practical, innovative and champion change management that completing the Master's in Healthcare Quality program will allow me to be socially accountable to our region's population as well as the Queen's University community. Oh, that's good. That's very good. Because I, I know in, in that particular program, like you said, it is sort of those quality parts. I mean, you know, are we doing a protocols well? Is, is risk sorted out? You know, or plans made for risk? 
and all that, those sorts of areas. So it's great that you're doing. It's, it's surprising then that more people, for instance, doing residency don't think about this if they want to have that social part of the world of looking, I'm, this is not just my job, I need to look outside the area as well. Yeah, throughout my uh, nursing and, and medical career, I've had the privilege of advocating for diverse Francophone and Aboriginal populations. But it, it continued to surprise me how legislation, systems-based issues, and funding can affect the timely access to patient care. Right. So I, right. I know what good care looks like, but I didn't know how it all came together. Right. So doing this program really allows me to understand what I would want as a patient. I know how to treat them as a nurse or a physician, but what does high-quality care look like from the patient perspective, and, and how do I deliver it? That's a really nice way of saying it, is looking at the patient side of things, because it's very easy to forget that when you have protocols, you know, have to do this, this and this. And like I said, from my own previous experience with doctors and things, and I know doctors are you know, very clever at what they do. I mean, that's what they're trained for. But we always talk about that, um, you know, how well they interact with the patient. Are they just going through, here's the checklist or they're actually looking at the patient and seeing what's going on with the patient. And, uh, you know, that's, and I must admit at the times when I found the nurses are very good at seeing what's happening to the patient where the, the physician at times is not. So um, it, it is good to look at the patient perspective because after all, they're the ones that are receiving the treatment or, or care. Yeah. So that's great. And, and I think also, like you said, if, you know, if you've worked with some of, you know, some of our indigenous communities and things like that, it's even more important because, you know, at times the healthcare system there doesn't work as well for some reason. So if you can look at that as well and sort of help produce or at least make people aware of where we can make some changes, which would be great. So you're only in your first year of your Master of Science. So normally when it comes to research and, and our program talks a lot about our student research, among other things. So you're not actually going to be doing any sort of research within your program until probably your end of the first year or beginning of the second year. But that's not to say you haven't done research or reviews in the past already or as part of your residency program. Because I think if uh, you explained to me earlier that um, as part of residency, there is a research section to it or at least one research project. So can you explain a research project that you're currently working on as part of perhaps your residency? Sure. My one main research project it's called the systematic review, which is looking at basically a lot of articles and uh, research that is focused around the assessment of pain after surgery. So really what it's doing is it's honing in on looking at these articles and seeing if and how they're assessing pain after surgery. Are they assessing pain at rest? Are they assessing uh, pain that may be provoked by movement? And if they're doing either or both, what are the methods that they're using to assess that pain and also in using medications to treat the pain that patients are experiencing? So one important thing to think about is that the drugs used to treat pain are only as good as the research studies that provide evidence. Right. So if we don't distinguish how we're measuring pain, we risk misunderstanding the underlying mechanisms that are contributing 
and may choose the wrong agents to treat it. So you said there was those two parts there. I mean, I know it's a, a more like a literature review of, of what has been written about already, but you said there was two parts, one of when they're at rest or one when they're actually moving. And I know a lot of times in um, hospitals, when you've had an operation, they want people to get up and about as quickly as possible. Then there's other parts. So that's the mo- that's quite big movements of getting out of bed but then there's other parts as well of and I'm not sure which part this fills in when you're talking about rest breathing and things breathing takes a lot of strain sometimes to take that big breath you know and I know sometimes they say take a big deep breath or do a cough and things and that that can hurt so which which parts are you sort of honing in on most or aware or is it a bit of both or did we find that you know managing the pain was easier in one like a resting state as opposed to physical state and then perhaps you can elaborate a little bit more on that so basically pain experienced after surgery is one of the most common and disabling complications that people face over 50 percent of people report moderate to severe pain in the first three days which may increase their chances of developing chronic pain down the road which may affect both aspects of what we were talking about Pain is associated with personal suffering, uh, delayed functional recovery, prolonged hospital stay, and complications like pneumonia, blood clots, and deconditioning that may prevent people from going back home safely. What we understand from previous research is that in the first few days after surgery, where patients may experience severe pain, the pain that's provoked by movement can magnify the pain experienced at rest by over 200%. Oh, wow. And the pain induced by movement is often experienced during normal activities, like you were saying, such as breathing, coughing, and walking. So if people are avoiding these movements, it will have a negative impact on their recovery. So depending on the type of surgery or procedure people are recovering from, certain movements or actions may be restricted because of of the pain that they've experienced. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you have lung surgery, you may be scared to take deep breaths or cough which will increase your risk of pneumonia. Or if you've had knee surgery, part of the early recovery process is to participate in physiotherapy and start moving the knee as as soon as possible. And it's really important to have a good understanding of what therapies might offer the most benefit and controlling pain that's provoked by movement because if they don't move, then they can be at a higher risk of blood clots that can travel to their heart and cause serious problems or even death. Right. So, yes. So the lack of movement can create more complications, as you said, which is not what we want because we want to be able to fix one area, not multiple areas because of not doing the the post-operative care that you need to have. Um, So, I mean, you've, you've, you've explained that about, you know, the proper assess, you know, why is it important to have proper assessment so we could have other complications if if we don't manage that pain so that they can feel comfortable to do these whether it's walking or coughing and and things like that so what are the what were the objectives of this particular study was it was it looking at you know is it easier to manage the pain at rest or or during activity I know you did say there was one section where the the physical ended up being like 200% more. The, the, what was you call it? The MEP. Yeah. So the goals of this review are, are to evaluate the research surrounding pain experienced after surgery. So really what we're doing is we're looking at each study's ability to assess how pain is experienced at rest. 
and how pain is experienced with movement in the early recovery period after surgery. And, you know, do these articles uh, distinguish between the two? And what methods are used to assess the pain provoked by movement? Is it something that's very clear? Is it vague? Are they using a standardized approach in terms of assessing the pain that's evoked by movement so that it's, it's reproducible, it's very granular, and we're able to say, if we do it exactly this way, we know that this agent will be effective for that type of pain that's experienced, which hopefully will make a difference. So how do you do that? Because I know normally they say, you know, what's your pain threshold today? You know, is it, pick a number between one and 10. That's very subjective. I mean, someone, my pain threshold could be totally different to someone else's pain threshold. So how do you get around this subjectivity from the patient of trying to monitor these levels? That's a really good question. Part of it is incorporating what we call pain scores, which is subjective, but other methods that we can use to assess function, because you could look at pain scores, but you can also look at function, are different tests such as using spirometry, which is how fast can you blow out this, this air, how big of a breath can you take, how when you've had knee surgery, how straight can you extend your leg because if you've got good pain control on board then you know it would be reasonable to think that you would be able to extend your leg in a knee surgery more than somebody who doesn't have good pain control right right So, so you can use subjective measurements and also something that's a little bit more measurable like objectively i guess that makes total sense because i always well okay i'm I don't like to complain. So yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it may not be. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's good that you got that second secondary measure, which is more that you've got more control of as opposed to the patient. So so that's really good. So with this though, because I, I find this absolutely fascinating, how does this particular topic fit into your work as an anesthesiologist? Are you the person doing that testing or is it the nurses? So it's both. Anesthesia is a unique field where limited patient contact can be used to connect with the patient's perspective and alleviate concerns through effective communication and high-quality care. And part of that care, part of what we provide to, to strive to achieve is one of the following goals, or all of them, known as the six A's of anesthesia. And the first A is anesthesia. And to put it simply is to feel nothing or to induce a a state of sleep. The second A would include analgesia, which is a fancy way of saying taking away pain or giving people pain relief. Right. The third A is anxiolysis, so that's to relieve anxiety. The fourth A is antiemetic, so it's prevent or take away nausea and vomiting. Following that is amnesia, so we're helping people to forget and also areflexia, which is... I like that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the muscles are relaxed to help the surgeons do their job, as I was saying earlier. So these are kind of the pillars of, of what anesthesia is. And, you know, analgesia or taking away that pain is, is extremely important in terms of optimizing the patient's experience um, throughout their surgical course. And as, as we've talked about before, it can have 
big impacts on on how they recover and what type of complications that they develop. So it's 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 very important for nurses and anesthesiologists to be on top of and and uh, provide good care for. Right, right. Yeah, I remember that the memory loss one between operations the first one clearly that wasn't part of it that, at that stage long many many years ago and then the second one like, I don't remember anything you know not even going to the operating room whereas the first one I remembered the whole trip there and the whole trip back kind of thing <laughs> probably wasn't from there it's probably from recovery but um, there were still those things ingrained in my head so clearly there's been a lot of changes over the years to sort of as you said one of the reasons for doing the Master of Science in Healthcare Quality is that making it a better experience for the patient all along. So even with within those short periods of time that I had my operations, there was clearly some advancements along the way from, I guess, re- looking at research and things and looking at how uh, protocols were in place, et cetera, to, to make the patient visit a lot better for them. Now... With that, there's some other things that you've been doing as well and things that you've wanted to try and incorporate into your own practice that you're doing right now. And you mentioned in, in some, just for everyone's information, I often get a bit of background about the students coming on the show, and so, which I always find fascinating. And there was one section here that Danny talked about you have used a different delivery of anesthetics using protocols developed out of Stanford, the, the delivery of anesthetics safer and more predictable in patients with difficult airways. Can you explain a little bit about, first of all, how did you find that protocol and why you wanted to use it where you currently are in the Kingston Health, is it Kingston Health Science Centre? That's right. So it all started with my interest in THRIVE, which is an acronym that's a fancy way of saying providing oxygen in large volumes to keep the patient's airway or windpipe open and their lungs expanded without using a breathing tube in a machine. This tool provides anesthesiologists with a new method to free up their hands in a way when trying to deal with some of their sickest patients. So I performed an extensive review to get ready for a presentation that we often do in residency called Grand Rounds where you present an up-and-coming topic to your peers. When reading about this new topic, I felt like I discovered something that was really important and would make a big difference for our patients. So using guidelines out of Stanford University, I've helped to facilitate the education of healthcare professionals in the use of Thrive or this tool in children undergoing surgery at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario and also here in Kingston. Through exploring this topic... I discovered that some of Stanford's clinical protocols, which is essentially an evidence-based guideline or approach to a clinical problem, you could think of it as almost like a recipe to help simplify how to deliver the best care. I found a protocol called Strive High, which uses a different way of delivering anesthetic in a predictable way to increase the margin of safety in high-risk patients. So its application is flexible, but it was designed for people that need surgeries for cancers and diseases affecting the head, neck, and lungs. So I'm hoping to complete further training and using these types of techniques at Stanford University once I'm done my residency training. That's great. That's And and do you think then 
if you find that this is a really good protocol, that is something that the Kingston uh, KGH and things would, would want to use or your fellow anesthesiologists? I hope so. And I think it does fall underneath the healthcare quality umbrella mm-hmm. as using these types of protocols that are evidence-based and have been put together from the most recent research and Mm -hmm. opinions of up-and-coming clinicians, it will really help to, like I was saying, simplify an approach to a clinical problem that, let's say, we may not necessarily experience all the time. Right, right. Well, that's fantastic because any sorts of improvements... Uh, one, I mean, in this instance, this is a protocol that's going to help, as you said, yourself, because it keeps your hands free to do other things. So anything that can help you in your role and also at the same time make the patient comfortable must be a win-win. Absolutely. And I'm sure there's always other things you have to take in consideration, but it, it, it sounds like a good plan. So hopefully that will come to fruition for you. Well, even if, if uh, like if in, uh, to break it down simply, these the way that we deliver oxygen in this way is through through the nose and instead of putting a mask on a patient for them to breathe in oxygen before they go off to sleep which some people might find claustrophobic yeah they get a bit freaked out if we can put something in their nose that provides the same goal and they're more comfortable then I think we're both winning. Great. Yeah, I know, because some people, like you said, can be a bit claustrophobic, and that's the last thing you want, particularly kids too. They don't, you know, kids don't want necessarily a mask coming to to look like they're going to be smothered when we know it's not that. So um, anything to make it a little easier. It's, it's actually really, really interesting. You've had such diverse research analyses that you've been doing. And I love this. So I, I do want to bring this one in because I actually find it fascinating and, because it's, and it's local as well, that you worked on a project which was basically a review of a letter to the editor and a review of the local response to the Canadian opioid epidemic in the Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox and Addington communities. So, I mean, that was just a review of a letter and some other data and things. What was it all about and what did you find out from looking at these papers and, and did it has it helped the community? So one thing I've learned about the opioid epidemic is that it affects everyone. It's ongoing, it's pervasive, and it's worsening in light of the pandemic. As healthcare professionals, we have a responsibility to care for those affected by opiate addiction and to practice in ways that help prevent it. So before medical school and residency, actually throughout uh, both of those, I, I still work as a registered nurse as part of a treatment team based out of Dennis Franklin Cromartie High School, based out of Thunder Bay. I continue to contribute to the development of sustainable community-run opiate addiction treatment programs and fly-in First Nations communities. And providing that type of care, we've been able to keep community members at home with their families, support economic growth, and connect patients with local and regional aftercare programs. Much better. So one of the moments I'll always remember is when I was asked by one of our new clients, or when I asked them why they joined the program, They said it was because there was hardly any opioids being sold in the community because everybody in the community had gotten onto this program. Right. So part of those experiences 
and also some other research that I did as a medical student in Kenora surveying primary healthcare providers and, you know, what are some things that we can do in order to make the care for patients that are affected by opiate addiction more accessible really drove my passion for uh, this issue going into residency. Early on in, the, in residency, I joined an opiate addictions group at Queen's and met a fellow psychiatry resident who shared an interest in spreading education surrounding this topic. And together, we wrote two papers that focused on looking at local practices surrounding opioid prescribing and the delivery of care relating to opiate addictions. Through those two papers, we found a lot of local data that was surprising, and we argued that medical school curriculum should include more education surrounding pain and addictions management, which is supported by Health Quality Ontario guidelines, which tees back into how this master's in healthcare quality will right. uh, help to improve how I provide care. Right. But also there needs to be further efforts to educate people on how to properly store and dispose of their leftover painkillers with their local pharmacy. So it was starting to realize that four out of five opioid-related deaths in Ontario were accidental and may have actually been related to a prescription that was too strong. And looking at some of the local data, we discovered that Kingston had one of the highest per capita rates of filled opioid prescriptions in Ontario. So since our first research paper was published, local policies have been developed to give guidance on the number of painkillers given to people going home after surgery. Wow, that was a bit scary, (laughs) truth be told. But it's nice that you, it's it's good that you found that out. So now some changes are, are happening because of it, which wouldn't have happened if you hadn't have delved into into that in the first place or had an interest in it from your living and then also with your work within the Queen's community. So that is fantastic, which just goes to show it's a lot of things that are going on. We don't always, we're not always aware of it or we're aware of it, but we don't do anything about it. It just takes one or two people to say, you know what, let's fix that. And with your background, you've clearly got a a, a diverse background, which is kind of helpful too, because you can, it sounds like you can see things in all sorts of different scenarios and looking at different people's perspectives of how this is going to impact both the communities, as well as um, individual people, as well as the health professions. So you've got quite a unique background there, haven't you? (laughs) Being a nurse, being an MD, being this anesthesiologist and being a researcher. uh, You've got lots of good background there. Okay, so you've done some really great stuff, but it doesn't stop there, folks. I mean, there's more. and I'm going to pick one more because I really like this one as well. So it seems this next project really fits into again, why you want to do a healthcare quality program. And I would imagine appropriate for your profession as anesthesiology. So again, this work is being done at Queen's in the Department of Critical Care and Computer Science. Can you tell us a bit about this central line tutor? That's what it's called. What is the central line used for? And how does this project assist training moving forward? So the, the ultimate goal of this project is to help us create a central line tutor. So if you can imagine a tutor, somebody that comes to your house that helps improve your learning surrounding a topic that, that you may be struggling with, but instead it's it's delivered in a different kind of a platform that uses artificial intelligence 
and deep learning technology, which is a fancy way of saying it kind of uses the same technology that your smartphone uses to recognize your face to unlock the phone. It, It uses these two things as an aid to help doctors in training develop their skills in central venous line insertions with minimal supervision. So a central venous line is basically a fancy catheter that goes in one of the blood vessels in your neck in order to help deliver medications to support you throughout your surgery. And this tutor is, is basically a combination of two things. So it's a, it's a high-tech model of the upper half of uh, someone's body in the form of a mannequin that has blood vessels that we can see on ultrasound and practice clinical skills on. And the second is the use of high-definition cameras that use that similar technology as smartphones. And we can teach these cameras to recognize different pieces of equipment used to perform this procedure and, and track the medical learner's hand motions. So what we're really trying to do with this tutor is provide a platform for medical learners, a safe environment where they can practice new skills at their own pace and learn from their mistakes before completing these tasks in the real world. So using these kind of technologies, we've created a checklist that's incorporated almost in a computer screen that they can look at while they're doing this procedure that helps to walk them through the proper steps to gain the confidence, skills, and muscle memory to perform this procedure more effectively in real patients. That's brilliant. The patient would be really glad on that. And like you said, it's less stressful for that medical student who's learning procedure. (laughs) So, you know, that's quite a varied collection of research projects and reviews that you've done. And like I said, you've only just started your Master of Science in Healthcare Quality, but clearly you're already showcasing how that program fits really nicely into what you're doing in your full-time job and and moving forward with everything that you've been learning so um, I think that's a great marriage there and and I want to wish you the best of luck with both your master of science and finishing your residency and then whatever else happens after that so thank you so much for coming on the show thank you Colette That was great. Excellent. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the podcast tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.